I'm Monica Perez here with Anthony Raimondo, the California lawyer who came to the rescue of many small businesses resisting government overreach during the lockdown. He did what I think all lawyers should have been doing, but didn't. But it's not the first time he's bucked the trend and he is here to tell us his story. So strap on your tanks, we're going deep with a dive master. Hello, Anthony, and welcome. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, you have a fascinating story. I mean, fascinating from beginning to end. And from like, I think before you graduated from college, I think that your story started to become fascinating. But so people know, we we hooked up because a now friend of mine, Joni, who did the No College Mandates movement, uh, introduced us because you were doing so much good work during lockdowns here in California. And I know that your good work is continuing, but let's just tell people about that. Because on my show, I've been telling them the whole time, like people would laugh at me, like you're calling for the lawyers. I'm like the lawyers are our only hope. They're our only hope. This is about process. We can slow this down long enough to defeat it if we just use the process against them instead of you know, ranting, but maybe I'm even wrong about that. Like, I know if you disagree, you'll tell me. So, so what was your, what was, the, what were you doing during lockdown that was so unusual for the lawyers? So my law firm is primarily, um, we primarily represent family businesses and small businesses, uh, mostly family farms. We're here in, I'm sitting here in my office in Fresno right now, which is kind of the center of agricultural California or as I call it, West Berlin, the island of freedom and surrounded by communists. So I've been representing family farms and family businesses over the years against all kinds of different regulatory enforcement, uh, primarily related to uh, California's labor laws. And when the whole lockdown thing started, the first thing they did was differentiate between what was an essential business and what was a non-essential business. And law firms were, we got the magic wand that we were essential. So unlike almost every other law firm that I know, I never closed my office. Like my clients need us and they needed us during COVID because while the laptop class was staying home, the farm workers were going out and milking cows and harvesting crops and they all had to operate. And there were a wide range of challenges, especially as the rules were changing pretty much every day and kind of everything we knew about the law related to the workplace was thrown out the window in the spring of 2020, and we entered this brave new world. So we were scrambling to help our clients comply with the regulatory environment. I told my employees that I didn't know what was going on with all this, but in our office, we were going to maintain a normal life and a normal work environment as much as humanly possible. So we worked normally during all of it. I did lose one employee, a very nice receptionist that I had uh, who was afraid of COVID and decided to quit, wrote me a very nice letter before she left, but uh, she wasn't comfortable and that was fine. So very quickly, what happened here is like in a lot of places, we had stay-at-home orders and our mayor issued a local order to mirror the state order that all of these non-essential businesses had to close. And I went to a reopened Fresno protest at City Hall. Uh, and while I was there, I met a number of angry small business owners, you know, people who were looking at like losing everything. I used to see a, a personal trainer here at that time uh, who had a little business, little training business, like right down the street from my house. And he was terrified. Like he wanted to stay open. I wanted him to stay open. Like I do that for my health. And they're telling me, you know, you can go to the bar, but you can't, you know, go to the, go to the grocery store and buy a bunch of booze and stay home and watch TV. Don't go work out. 
So he stayed open and a number of businesses here were staying open and defying these orders. And I was really inspired by the people at that protest. And I left there with the conviction of like, okay, I got to do something to help these people in my own community. And so um, I put myself out there and we started representing small businesses here that uh, were getting cited by local code enforcement officers for remaining open despite the lockdown order. And some of the genesis of that is there's a little breakfast place, waffle shop down the street from where I'm sitting right now that made a big story on the local news because he stayed open and the code enforcement people came to cite him and his customers blocked the door and wouldn't let them in. And it ended up with a little bit of a scuffle and a Vietnam veteran who was in his 70s was arrested and dragged off by the police like on the news. For wow. So people have their cell phones out. And I was like, man, if that guy can do something, like I got to do something and I know how to fight regulatory enforcement. So we started just putting it out there that we would represent people for free. And if they got cited, come to us and we'd fight, fight the ticket, essentially, um, which is what we did. And we ended up representing a number of businesses here. I mean, we represented some uh, a jujitsu studio, uh, hair salons, nail salons, laser tag, you know, where the kids go and play laser tag uh, place, a bunch of different just small businesses. I feel like the the things that were deemed essential were simply stuff that didn't have any social elements. I, I and my cynicism, and I last time I heard you talk, oh. you weren't as cynical as I am, but that you might be now. But that they, the decision of what was essential, what was allowed to be open, wasn't strictly done on grounds of health and logic. It seemed to me like it, uh, it shut down things that were social and things that had human beings at the retail level. I almost wonder if it was a way to move out labor and move in iPads in a, in a future world. But did you think that the essential what was deemed essential, what was deemed closed down was rational or arbitrary or sinister? I think it was both irrational and sinister. I think the sinister element of it comes from kind of higher up the chain. I think it's very easy to overestimate the intelligence and competence of low-level government officials and bureaucrats. These are people who, for a large part, are extremely unimpressive and at best mediocre people. It's why they gravitate towards this type of government bureaucratic employment, because, you know, even in our heavily regulated economy, the private sector is inherently competitive. Government employment is not competitive. There's very little accountability. I totally have that experience. So anytime somebody has a real job, I don't care how like hard they are to talk to or unintelligent or whatever. I'm like, this person understands the feedback mechanism. Like this person has to understand that being a jerk to me is bad or doing a terrible job. Like I already come in with a with an assumption that anybody who is surviving in the private sector is already has some concern about me. Whereas when I deal with the government, I assume that they're all waiting for a reason to throw me out because less work for them is how they're, I mean, I, I, that's a, too far. I don't know about that, but I'm just saying like that you can see that there's different mechanism in the private sector as the public sector. And it concerns me 
the only time I ever did anything activist was when I went to march against Obamacare three times in D.C. because I said, this is it. If the tipping point is that the majority of all jobs are, are dependent on taxation and um, government bureaucracy, the entire you know society could collapse. And also that, especially if you vote by majority, no one will ever vote for a smaller government or for less... Um, for less government control or taxes because the majority of the people are are dependent on that. And then it's not about doing a better job. It's about getting more people to show up to the protest. Yeah. And in, in the government world, oftentimes what it really is about is satisfying some arbitrary standard that was put across in some memorandum by somebody higher up the chain so that you can reach, if you hit these statistical milestones, you reach the next level of government. It's not about any sort of like real world outcome. It's about all these weird internal priorities. And, you know, I mean, I remember I was on the phone with one of the people from uh, code enforcement who called me because she knew me. You know, years ago, I was a public defender and I actually did a jury trial against this lady when both of us were very young. And so she called me like, hey, I don't know if you remember me. And I, I think she was trying to have some kind of friendly, like, we don't have to have this conflict. You don't have to do this call, uh, which went nowhere. Uh, but I mean, it popped into my head, like, what kind of person goes through all the effort to go to college, go to law school, and go to work for code enforcement? I mean, <laughs> you're you're like a professional hall monitor at that point. Like, what? Who, well, I assume aspiration it's, is it to have that job? Well, I assume that there's there's security, there's stability, and I actually. I'm totally fine with people. It's like the parable of the talents. Like I'm completely fine with people having different preferences and different abilities and all of that. But it, it seems to me that people are overcompensated. I, I think that's clear by the numbers overcompensated in government to take a job that maybe they're wouldn't bring out their highest and best talents. And yeah, I mean, I think it's it actually there was a case in Connecticut of a fireman who got scored too high on an IQ test, or maybe it was a cop, too high. And he was refused his, a job with the fire department because they said, people like you don't last because you get too bored. And my answer was that that can't be true because it's rational to suppress your desire to have a fulfilling job if you are getting you know, a low risk, above market pay. So, but there's also the idea of like influence and authority. And, I, and what you're saying about the government, no feedback mechanism, all that, like I, I think it applies to academia, politics. And the media as well, like there's no feedback mechanism, yet these are the people who seem to be, for whatever reason, kind of not exalted and cited, but, you know, respected and more influential than really they should be, given that, that you don't get the bones from being responsible for your decisions when the rubber hits the road. Well, I think it ultimately comes down to institutions that are inherently bureaucratic. And I think academia is a great example. And don't get me started on academia because that's one of my. Okay, well, maybe I know you. I know you went to law school, and like I despise how we train lawyers. I think law school is such a waste of time and money. We should treat the practice of law as a trade. You should learn. You, you know, you can't do that like here. You, I know you can do that in California, yeah. um, but you have to have a college degree. Like I know a guy who doesn't have a college degree who's absolutely brilliant, who would make a fantastic lawyer, and I would love to. Like take that guy on as an apprentice and teach him the trade and he would be fantastic. He'd be better than any like Harvard law graduate you've ever met. But I think one of the great failures of the legal profession is when they started treating this as an academic and intellectual pursuit rather than a roll up your sleeves trade. I'm a doctor. 
right? Isn't that what JD stands for? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just hilarious. I'm like, it's anytime like, it's like someone has a PhD and they don't want to be called doctor, I'm like, that's totally fine. But then you have to call me doctor. <laughs> the vast majority of law professors have never had a client. Like many of them have yeah. never practiced law or they were judicial clerks. But like yeah. they've never done the actual job, which is engaging with a client and trying to solve somebody's problem. Yeah. And, and where I went to school, as you can imagine, it was all about policy. It was all about, it was totally baffling to me that it was just, I mean, and I would get all the answers, right? Not, I didn't do very well, but I could answer the questions in class. Like, why would the judge rule this way? And I was just like, uh, policy, <laughs> policy, you know, it had nothing to do with, because it, it was kind of baffling when you put it against the law. But yes, actually, I'll probably want to pick your brain again, and we'll have a whole new list of topics. But when you were saying about how the low-level bureaucrats or people in a bureaucracy at the low-level I'm going to say maybe drones or whatever, but there is such a trend towards bigger, more authoritarian government with social engineering um, trends and cultural manipulation that I feel like they will intentionally, like the reason they they screen for people, if that's true, they really screen for people with like lower IQs. At that, I, I think that was a farce. I think they just didn't want to hire the guy. But if they could make that argument, then it's really because they want order followers. And I would, I would suggest, I don't know if you agree with this or not, that the people who are giving those orders, the people who are writing those memos, who are setting those what you called arbitrary benchmarks, really know what they're doing, actually. Because I don't think you I, or I, I could become a professor at an at an academic institution. And the better that our treatises were, the less likely we would be able to get a job as a professor at an institute because they don't want that. They want people who grasp the existing paradigm and can push it down onto the next generation. They don't want people who are thought leaders. And and what they want is the cultural change that I think, you know, surely... You, you must acknowledge that like this whole World Economic Forum stuff and oh, yeah. the they Great want, Reset. They, they want compliance. They yeah, want and, but they want compliance. And, and they, they are, I think that what's descending upon us is the, the framework for the compliance in the fact mm -hmm. that everything is being, has, there's just surveillance and censorship and the modular, you know, the, the normalization or making regular all these processes so that they can have more command and control from the top you know, like they're, they're building schools that have no niches and have no landscaping and have, you know, they make sure that the windows and the doors are all flush so there's no place to duck into schools. They're, they're telling kids to have clear backpacks and stuff. So I feel like it's coming down from the top and that the, the reason that these people who are, who are in the service of something sinister don't realize it, I think that's by design. But I know you say, like, don't overestimate bureaucrats, but at a certain well, the, level. The low level, I think they, yeah. at the higher level, what you're saying is very true. Okay. They understand the mechanism they have in place beneath them, these sort of unimpressive people who will enforce what they're doing without question, right? The person who will use their job as a code enforcement officer to take someone's livelihood. And one of the business owners that I represented said to me, it's one of the smartest things. This guy who doesn't have much education, but he's very entrepreneurial, started a small business. He has a daughter who's, I mean, at the time of the lockdowns, I think she was about three years old. And he said to me when I met with him, he goes, they can cite me all, all they want. They can find me all, that they, all they want. Because if I close, I know what happens. If I close 100%, I go broke and I can't feed my daughter. But if I stay open, I can make a living and take care of my child. 
and I'll figure out what to do about these fines. And maybe the fines break me, maybe they don't, but at least I have a chance. If I close, I know I have no chance. And then I feel like guys like that, this had the, I think, intentional effect of, in some cases, bringing guys like that to their knees and saying, I never needed anything in my entire life and now I need welfare. And half the people will say, you know, screw them in their lockdown. But uh, other half will say, thank God there's a safety net. I didn't realize, you know, because there are low level drones in the real world too. I mean, not everybody is a critical thinker, but well, yeah. That's why I, we did what we did here. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's funny. One, I have uh, four lawyers that I work with. I have a partner and then three young lawyers that we work with. And at the beginning of this, one of the young lawyers that I work with was very nervous and like wanted to work from home and was like, sort of buying into the narrative. I talked to him about this the other day. And by the end of it, he was getting thrown out of the local movie theater by re- for refusing to wear a mask. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I love this path that you took. And I like to think that like working here was some, was a part of like setting you on that and helping you come to that realization. He was like, absolutely. He's like the fact that we didn't do it here and we didn't play ball. But then he worked on a lot of those, uh, a lot of those cases that, you know, we were very successful. Um, with every case except for one, we were able to protect the business and we actually didn't have to litigate. They backed off just because we stood up. They gave up and backed down. And one of the things that helped is we had an election in the middle of the lockdown, you know, the, the November election, and we got a change in mayor. And I was really fortunate. Actually, that same lawyer um, knows the mayor's son. So he got me a Zoom call with the new mayor. And um, I had like a PowerPoint ready with all of the data on masks. Uh, if you know, um, I think it was his name, Ian Miller, I think his name is on, on Twitter, who did all these like masks. It's really cool graphs about how mask mandates don't work. I like stole all his graphs from Twitter and I put them in a PowerPoint, screen shared it over Zoom. And I was telling him like, Mayor, you can't, this, this doesn't make any sense. You've got to stop this. Um, and so the, the, after, when he got elected, uh, and he's not a guy, by the way, that I have tremendous agreement with uh, politically. He's a guy who's been a, a local institution in this town for a long time. He was the police chief in Fresno uh, previously, and I do have some issues with him politically. However, I got to give him his credit that he listened to me. And I don't know if it was because of me or because of other people that were talking to him or his general ideology, but he did the right thing and he figured out a way to back them off of it. And the citations for people remaining open petered out here, um, and that all. Uh, came to an end. The only case that we weren't able to get dismissed was one where the original hearing was handled by a different lawyer and it was lost. And then we came in and tried to appeal that. Um, And ultimately, the business owner decided he didn't want to keep pursuing the appeal. He could afford to pay the citation. And it wasn't continuing to go on. So he let it go. Okay. I have a lot of things. So One thing about the mayor, I have noticed during this whole thing or in the aftermath of all of this that, uh, first of all, I don't even think ideology is anywhere near as important as I used to think it was. I mean, it's just the the corruption and the the deception at the top is really the problem. It's not like there are all these politicians who are working hard to make the uh, American experiment and laissez-faire economics work, and they're battling people who are... um, politicians who are devout socialists who really want to make the most of our productivity and whatever. It's not that at all. That, that All of that is just to get the people who are voting to think that there's somebody that they are to identify to reflect their own ideological integrity. But there isn't any up there. But if you find somebody who has, in my experience these days, 
who has integrity, even if it's like the opposite ideology. I'm a libertarian and people would, would maybe even consider themselves um, sympathetic with socialism because they have just a different view of society and property rights and the inequality of God's gifts, that, but they have the integrity to recognize when something is fundamentally wrong. And I feel like it may be easier these days to work with people like that. I, maybe that's an explanation for your mayor. I also think that the fact that you had access to the mayor um, just through two degrees of separation is a testament to the um, value of living in a smaller place rather than a bigger place. And so one man in Fresno can have like a really change that uh, the profile of that town for the entire duration. And if there were one person like you in every town, the size of Fresno, I mean, the entire country would have changed. And, and I mean, do you agree with that? And why were, I mean, you, I heard you say that other lawyers looked at you sideways and I just, why, you know, what is, where are these, are they stupid or are they bad? Or so can you, can one man make a difference and why weren't there more one man's? Well, I think that, one person can make a difference. And I didn't embark on this to like transform the whole town or change the course of history. I looked at it much more simply than that. Like I just wanted to help each person that I could help. So every business that we represented, every person that we've helped with various aspects of the medical tyranny that we've seen through COVID, like it doesn't have to change everything. It changed things for that person. And to me, that's like, that's incredibly meaningful and incredibly gratifying that I can think of the names and faces of people whose lives were affected for the better by what you know, we did. And that is actually, because one thing I was going to ask you maybe later, but I'll just bring it out now, is that I know that, um, and I, I want to get into some of this with you, and Joni's the same way, is that like how to be active how to be effective as an activist, like you have mad skills, like you have relevant skills and you know what to do, you have experience. And someone like me, I'm just sitting around like, A, I was trying to make sure that my kids didn't lose their minds being locked down for a year and a half in a you know place they didn't really agree with that. And um, so there's so there's that, but you know, how does somebody know how to use their time more wisely than just, you know, jawboning like I do? Or I mean, I do try to kick cook my kids a good breakfast, and I feel like that's really important, <laughs> you know. But but also like helping one person. So I had a friend in need whose husband they just lost everything because of lockdown. It was like a situation like yours, but they were their product was sourced from abroad and they just couldn't get them. They went under and then he got um, really sick and they just are having all sorts of problems. And I, I helped her a little bit, just a little. And even to the point where it's just like, I don't really actually, I'm, I, I'm not a lawyer lawyer. Like I went to law school, I passed the bar, but I don't practice, but I will go sit with you in the courtroom. I will sit with you. So it's not as scary, you know, just little things like that. I feel like, if you take advantage of um, the, and then actually, because I was telling somebody this story, a lawyer did come help and fixed her problem, actually, to be honest. So I feel like if you can look at those little opportunities, you know, even that the parable of the Good Samaritan, like you just, if there's just one little opportunity, even if you're modeling behavior or give somebody solace or whatever, maybe it can spread. So I feel like that's not a bad way to look at it. Can I help one person in one small way? But in your case, it's a big way and not everybody can do it like that. Well, yeah, I mean, we all have different opportunities 
of what we're able to do for people. And um, I mean, I was fortunate in the fact that I had a lot of things in my favor. Number one, I mean, this is kind of what I do um, is, you know, fighting against government agencies and representing people in these types of legal processes. You know, I had my own business, so I didn't have to answer to anybody. Like I could just do this and, you know, I could say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it for free. And I have employees who work for me, lawyers that work for me, and they're they're getting their check and I'm just telling them what to do. And it's not, doesn't hurt them if I don't get paid for it. Right. I mean, so um, I was, you know, I always encourage people like you never know the value of being an entrepreneur and being economically independent until you actually do it. You know, I used to be a partner in one of the biggest firms in town here, and I wouldn't have been able to do this there because I, my partners would have never let me do that. And I left there and started my own firm, you know, partially for money, but partially because I didn't want to answer anybody. I wanted to be able to be free to do what I want to do. You know, so, I mean, it's not just the representation stuff that we did. You know, I had no vaccine mandate in my office ever. I never closed my office. You know, uh, we only briefly did the mask thing because I had some employees who were scared who wanted us to wear masks. But, you know, I'd walk around the office and people would have their thing pulled down <laughs> and yeah. they'd like see me and they'd I'm like, don't worry about it. <laughs> right. um, and so, you know, and we dropped that pretty, pretty quickly. Um, you know, you mentioned kids. I think what you what people do for their own children in a situation like this is so important. Because for one thing, like I wanted to teach my kids, like not to believe this and like to be not to live in fear and not to be afraid and to live their lives. So when they closed the schools, I started bringing my younger son, who was in high school at the time, uh, here to the office with me every day. And they, you know, they made him do their stupid remote school thing. I said, well, you're going to come and do that in my office. So you get up, you get dressed, you get out of the house and you go somewhere else. And then I would take him to lunch every day. So he's getting that time with dad every day that I think is so important. I opened up my home to all his friends. So we had a house full of teenagers constantly throughout the lockdown and they'd come to our house and we'd buy pizza and they'd swim in the pool and they'd play video games and they'd yell at each other and you know we just let them do their thing because teenage for teenagers the social thing is so so important yes and, and I, I had three teens in in this situation and that just tells you about culture and you are behind the berlin wall or i am i'm you are behind the berlin wall i'm in east germany because uh i expected that when it all happened, I would say any one of my fr kids' friends, I would say, hey, you are always got a place here. I don't buy into that crap, blah, blah, blah. And in the beginning, they were happy. And after a while, their parents got to them. And that was it. That was it. And uh, we just never saw anybody again. And I was really disappointed. And the old people and the young people, like the super old people, I have this joke. It's not even really a joke. I would go to the grocery store and there'd be like ancient people shopping and I'd say, can you believe this crap? You know, whatever. And they would just be like, stay away. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're going to die soon either way. <laughs> like, why? Well, you know, I'm, why bring so, down the country? I'm so proud of my mom who's 80. Uh, and, you know, she came to our house for the holidays. You know, she came for Thanksgiving. She came for Christmas. And we had a lovely time. And nobody was wearing masks. And it was all normal as far as our family stuff. And I was really proud of her that she resisted that fear. But I mean, little things like, I was always known in my neighborhood here in Fresno. I've since sold my house and moved away, which is a whole different story. But um, 
in my neighborhood in Fresno, I was always known for my crazy Halloween display. I love Halloween. It's like my favorite holiday. Awesome. Um, so I would do this elaborate display in my yard every year, with like animatronics and lasers and fog machines and this whole thing. And so I was known by all the kids and all the neighbors that like, he's the guy who does the crazy Halloween thing. So as you know, you know, starting in 2020, you know, the governor Newsom came out and don't have Halloween, don't have trick-or-treating. And I was like, the hell with that. You're not telling me not to do Halloween. And I didn't know if anybody was going to come or not. But I set it up, like, to send a message to my neighborhood, I'm doing Halloween, I don't care what they say. And it was such an awesome experience because I think we probably had more kids than we'd ever had before. And I had, like, parents coming up to my door and thanking me. Like, we didn't know if you were going to do it this year, and we're so happy and so grateful that you did it. And the kids were so excited. I mean, so, I mean, that's not even lawyer stuff. That's like little stuff you can do in your own neighborhood that that stuff makes a difference in somebody's life. I, I will say, so that demonstrates to me the importance of good relationships. And But first I was telling my son who has Down syndrome was so upset about the Holly, Halloween thing that he wrote a letter to the congressman here, right. who I think is like Adam Schiff or something. And of course it's in his like scrawl and he was, and I, I, I maybe I'll, get a picture of it and put it in the show notes if I can find it. But it was, dude, that, that was really, really important to him. It was devastated and nobody did anything for sure. Not, but you have these relationships and, uh, and my guess is that people know that you're a person of integrity. You put the energy out to contribute to the community in the Halloween display, which to me is as important as anything you could do in the community is to keep holidays alive and keep that sense of community going, that sense of unity, that sense of welcome very important. And one, one thing I heard you say uh, at one point was about, you know, people need to get off their asses and do something. And I, I mean, I really struggled with that this whole time. So it, that I come back to that theme because it resonated with me. And one of the things I thought of in response to what you had said was for me, my husband and I went to school in California. I'm from New York and he's from Texas. We when our kids were little, we didn't take seriously enough the impact of moving a lot. We moved a lot. And then um, I've always objected this ever since my mother's 93 and was never afraid. Um, and she's still living alone. But she said that World War II, she said what the problem was that it took all the boys out of the small towns and they never went back because they they met other people, they got married and stuff. And I feel that way about college. Like everybody's like, where am I going to go away to college? I'm like, did I put 20 years of my life into this so that you could leave and never come back? Like I, I'm horrified by that. And I feel like because we don't have roots, which I do think is intentional, whether it's on international or like local level, and it, it's very hard to not only care about that community um, or to understand the culture of that community, how to work within it. If you're trying to impose your your views on a on a culture that has a different style, but also the roots, the connections, the relationships that can make you more effective. Uh, I mean, I just, I feel like there's a, a big problem in that we are kind of rootless and cultureless and that, that made us easier prey for uh, the lockdown and, and just feeling isolated and not really, I mean, I, I was, I didn't, I didn't feel like making that statement at the local Vons and not wearing a mask. Like I was like, I just need to move. <laughs> you know, I just need to move out of LA. So I don't know if if you if you feel like if you've noticed that the value of the roots of the connection if you contribute to your community like that because you love them or in the interest of your children or it's just it's just easy well, and you like the stuff. 
I think it's, you know, it's, it's funny when you, when I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking about that with reference to myself, cause I'm not from Fresno. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in LA um, and uh, lived a couple years in the Bay area. And then my wife and I settled here in Fresno because I got a job here and she wanted to go back to school. Um, so Fresno state was here. So it was kind of convenient. And our thought was, well, we'll go there for a couple years and get started. Uh, and then we'll go somewhere else. Um, but we actually really liked it here. Um, so we stayed here and raised our kids here. And I'm really glad that I did. It's a wonderful place to raise kids. It was a really great place for us to live for a long time, but I'm not, I'm not one of those people that like knows all my neighbors. And I mean, I don't think I lived in that, in that neighborhood for 15 years. And I, I didn't know anybody by name. They didn't know me by name. They just knew I was the Halloween guy. Right. And I started the Halloween thing because when we moved there, the neighborhood was mostly older people. It was one of these neighborhoods where people raised their kids there, yes. and stayed there, and, you know, and then got old in their house until eventually they either died or they had to move to a smaller place or whatever. Yeah. And it was, it was sort of exaggerated because when we moved in there, uh, I bought the house in 2008. Um, so right at like the bottom of the housing crash. So you had all the older people that were holding on to their houses, right? Because yeah. the, the, the market had bottomed out. And the first year that we did Halloween there, we always took our kids trick-or-treating because, again, I'm a, I'm a goofball about Halloween. Uh, and, like, the first year we were there, like, nobody had – because there were no kids there. Like, no one had candy out. Nobody had their lights on. Nobody had decorations. And I was just like, you know what? We're making this neighborhood a Halloween neighborhood. So I just started doing it. And I did it even though I didn't know the people. Like I did it for the kids of the neighborhood. And it was really neat to see it grow over the years because then that turnover happened. Yeah, the little kids. Now you have the all little, little kids, kids are, right? I mean, I'd see kids, they That's come up great. to the door and tell me, oh, I come to your house every year. I love it. Or, you know, one year a little kid came to me and he was like, he was like, this is the first year that I actually made it to the door. I was too scared in the past. No like, way. Big, oh, that's awesome. Kid. And I was like, that's awesome. Success. Like, Do you have a whole um, garbage? So, that, you know, this yeah. is Halloween time. It's October. So you do you have a whole big garbage um like can full of candy every year i hand it out so we personally yeah. personally i keep i i answer the door and i hand it out. i love seeing the kids yeah yeah excited about the whole thing and like i know like some of the people i know are like well don't you get mad when like teenagers come by and they don't have a costume i'm like no because when they would come to my house with all the elaborate stuff that i had they would um they would come to the door and they'd be like all like tough teenager when they got to the house. Right. But then by the time they got to the door, they were like a little kid again, just for a minute. Right. Oh, this is so cool. Like oh, seeing that great. child come out of that teenager just for a minute to me was so awesome. So I always loved, you know, working Halloween night. It was exhausting, but like answering the door <laughs> and handing the, kid, the kids, the candy was like a big thing for me. Um, right. I That's awesome. These people personally at all. Yeah. But it was still became a tradition in our neighborhood. And when the for sale sign went up on our house, like people came and knocked on the door and they're uh, like, what are we going to do for Halloween? Uh, but surely they, it must have caught on in that neighborhood a little bit. That kind yeah, of stuff more is people started doing catching. more. Yeah. Other people started doing more. So they'll be fine. It's going to be a Halloween neighborhood there for a long time. So are you going to um, move your office as well? Is your wife going to move her job? Uh, my wife has already moved her job. So we moved to a very small town on the Oregon coast um, and wow. a 49 acre ranch, which is a whole nother story of what I'm going to do with all that. That's like my, my, my whole thing now is uh, what I'm doing with this property up 
in uh, up, up in rural Oregon. My I wife, have a lot of connections of homesteaders and farmers in Oregon. If you uh, want them after we, the show, we, we definitely we definitely need to talk. I mean, the the Reader's Digest version is because I've been working in the in the ag industry for so long. I have a friend who's a young man who uh, has been a client of mine from the dairy and livestock industry. And he and I are going to start a regenerative agriculture grass-fed beef business on my property. And my property is in an area that is designated by the Audubon Society as uh, an important area for bird habitat. In the, this is in the Coquille River Valley. Apparently 50% of the migratory birds that pass through Oregon pass through our valley. And part of my property is actually designated as a wetland. We have a, a pond in our front pasture that kind of raises and falls with the season in terms of the amount of water. And we have tons of birds there. So we're trying to build this idea of, of raising beef there with regenerative agriculture in a way that also preserves this habitat for the birds. So we can show like, it's kind of like to counter this narrative about, you know, beef yes. livestock production is, is evil, that we can actually raise cows in this beautiful place for beef in a way that cooperates with and enhances the health of the land and the environment. Uh, so that's kind of- I have, I have people to, for you to talk to about that, including podcasters. And I'll tell you all about it when we, and um, off air or maybe sometime on air, but- uh, so anyway, My wife is up there. She, yeah. I, I mentioned you before, she's a special ed teacher. So she's yes. teaching special ed uh, third through sixth grade in the next town over, which is like eight miles from where from where we are there's there's less people in that town than there are there were than there were students in my son's high school um and he we, we promised him we wouldn't move until he graduated from high school yeah. so we moved this summer he's now a, a college student down in in, in southern california oh. and um so my office is still here in fresno i'm still practicing law in california i have a home office on my property up in oregon that i work out of and then i travel down here regularly which is why i'm here uh, right right okay. now um, and then my my partner runs the day to day of the office here, and I work with the clients from from up there. And if they need me, I come down here. And so far, we're making that work. So uh, a couple of things come up as you're talking. One, I want to know about um, not just how the beef is made, but how the sausage is made, and a couple of different things that I feel like you have firsthand experience. And um, but I, and I and I also want to hear about your fight to keep your license in California. So I I don't it might be a little bit out of order, but I want to go back to your experience both in Bosnia and in the public defender's office. So because I feel like you have inside knowledge or observations that the rest of us just can't hear. So the, the Bosnia thing, that was a, uh, you were watching elections, right? And I just always wonder that because I, I don't, I don't know how like awake you are to how screwed up everything is, but the whole Ukraine situation, like we did a coup there eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So People are all mad at Putin, but there's definitely a beginning to the story. And the whole thing with Crimea, I mean, there was a referendum that had, mm -hmm. I think, 85% of the people showed up and 95% of them voted to go with Russia because they all spoke Russian and Russian was outlawed by the Ukraine government. I mean, obviously, this is just self-determination. And um, the one argument that people will say to me anytime I say anything like that about any other country's right to self-determination is, well, the, well, the, the elections are 
that can't be true. The elections were not like nearly unanimous. Like, like, okay, how about a majority? So did you find that as an international observer in the Bosnian elections that we can trust the, you know, when Jimmy Carter puts his stamp of approval, we can trust it or what? So what I did was um, I worked for an NGO in 1997 in Bosnia on um, voter registration for the municipal elections after the war there. And it was a whole process that was set up through the peace treaty. And what had happened was the first round of municipal elections, the results were thrown out because they were not seen as legitimate. And so they were trying to correct a lot of those issues through the voter registration process. And when I graduated from law school, it just so happened that an alumnus from our law school was working for the State Department as like the liaison to this NGO. And uh, they were hiring people and they put this hiring announcement out to uh, the law school. And I literally just thought, wow, that sounds like an amazing thing to do. I want to do that. So I applied for it and they hired me. And I actually missed my own law school graduation because I was on a plane to, to, to Sarajevo. Good. Uh, my mom still gives me a hard time about because she and my father had bought like non-refundable plane tickets to come out to my graduation. Oh, and wow. They went to my graduation, but I wasn't there. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you made the right choice. <laughs> um, well, it was a once in a lifetime um, experience. And to this day, I still like struggle to process everything that I saw there and the significance of all of it, because it was really kind of this whirlwind um, experience. Uh, and it definitely changed me and affected me. And I remember while I was there one night having dinner with some of my colleagues and some of, we worked very closely with local people in this voter registration center. Um, and I was in, I don't know how much you know about what happened there after the war, but essentially the country was divided in half. And there was what's called the uh, the IEBL, the Inter-Entity Boundary Line, between Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was Muslim and Croat, and Republika Srpska, which was Serbian. And it, you know, because of all of the the ethnic disputes, that was a very stark, stark difference. The town that I was in before the war had been split about three ways evenly between the various ethnic, group, ethnic groups. And when I was there, it was all Serbs. And they were under sanctions at the time because they weren't cooperating with the peace agreement. So you'd be in Sarajevo on the what they called the Bosniak side of the line, and everything's being rebuilt. And there's construction everywhere. And like life is returning to normal. And there's like people out in cafes at night and like, you know, gas stations. And then on the other side of the line where we were was like, Black market gas, black market toothpaste, like, you know, they're filling potholes in the street with sand. Um, and so um, we're having dinner one night and we're sitting there with our, we all had interpreters and drivers who were local people. And one of the, my interpreter actually got, had probably had a couple drinks too many and got upset during the conversation and said, Who are you, Americans, to come here and tell us? to have democracy. We had democracy in Yugoslavia. We had elections. One of my coworkers who actually was a Harvard graduate in political science started trying to explain to him that the Yugoslav elections were not legitimate. And he was like, oh, were you here? Did you vote? What do you know? Like we had democracy. We know what democracy is. We don't need you to give us democracy. How good are your elections? How do you know they're valid? Good points. That came back to me really strongly in 2020. I'm like, oh man, that guy knew. He knew. Um, 
And there were all kinds of, I mean, there were all kinds of shenanigans that were going on, things that were going on, both from outside forces trying to impact the control of those elections, as well as the very rules that we were enforcing. Uh, to give you an example, so my job there, I had a really fancy title. I was called a future municipality adjudicator. And what my job was is part of the re voter registration process there was designed to force the reintegration of ethnic groups that had been displaced. So you had people that had been displaced internally, and then you had people who are, were refugees who had fled the country, many of whom wanted to come back now that the war was over. So in that registration process, you could register to vote in a place where you had never lived before the war, in a place of intended future municipality, like intended future residents. And there were a bunch of, so I had to go through this whole training, and there were a bunch of criteria that people could meet to show that they were going to legitimately settle in this area where they had no connections, they had never lived before, and register to vote there. And the idea was to encourage people of other ethnic groups to return to the country, and if they didn't feel like they could return to their pre-war home, that they could return somewhere they intended to live if they could show they had a job there, they had family members there, I mean... But what would, how would they educate themselves? I mean, they're so vulnerable to propaganda as to what choice they make. Well, what would happen is, the, first of all, the great irony of it is, is that most of the time that I was there, I had nothing to do. I spent a lot of my time just sitting in this voter registration center at this table that no one came to, to the point where I started volunteering to go out to the countryside and register people to vote who couldn't come into town because it was just a waste of time for me to sit in this voter registration center. But when I did have people come, it was a disaster because for the ones who were refugees who were coming from outside of the country, they had like pre-registration centers all over Europe that people could go to to find out like what they needed to do. And they gave them the wrong instructions. So I'm dealing with these people who are furious. I remember one day that there was one guy who came in and he wanted to register himself and his wife and he had brought all of his documents. And I had to explain to him, no, no, the rules require that your wife has to personally be here. You can't register for her. Like, we have to take her fingerprint. Of course, the great irony for someone in the United States is we actually had to fingerprint people for voter registration there. Oh, my God. And, and, and what, you know, what, what could possibly go wrong? Now you've registered, I mean, every single press sounds like a complete scam. Like, you were a front for the CIA. Well, <laughs> say that but <laughs> one of the things that would happen there is you know we worked we lived and worked among the regular ordinary people like so i had an apartment in town that i shared with another with another colleague and i just hung around town and it was weird because most of the people that i worked with hung out with the other people that we worked with and i was like i'm in bosnia man i can hang out with a bunch of like americans and europeans and canadians whenever i want like I want to experience this place. So I went out all the time on my own and hung out with people that we work with in the voter registration center who were local people or they, they spoke English or were you picking up the well, language or what? Most, most people there were bilingual, but you also have to remember a substantial part of our staff was interpreters. So I had a full-time interpreter and uh, I actually befriended an interpreter who worked in the voter regist registration center. Um, I was single at the time, and I actually had a relationship with a young lady that worked in the voter registration center as a as an interpreter while I was there, which is a whole different story. But um, I met and I met these young kids in town 
who like they were fascinating because you remember I was a lot younger then. So this is the nineties. I had like a little goatee and, uh, <laughs> and they heard I was from Los Angeles and they were like, Oh, rock and roll Los Angeles. And like, so I hung out with these kids. Like we'd go up, there was a castle in town and we would go up. I mean, everything was so insanely cheap there. So what I was getting paid was like a, a King's ransom for what those people were living on. So, I, you know, I would buy like these milk crates they would sell that were full of beer and we'd go up to the castle in town and like they'd, play guitar, we'd sing songs and hang out. Like, you know, I had this amazing experience with the people there. Well, there were others who noticed that we could live freely among the people there. So like you'd walk into a bar there and some dude would walk up to you, an American guy in an open neck shirt and a sport coat carrying a laptop. Hey, you American? I mean, they looked like software salesmen. Like, yeah, well, let me buy you a drink. And they chat me, well, what are you doing here? What's your job? And they'd start picking your brain for what you were hearing and experiencing from the people. And I can only assume these were intelligent. Right, 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 right. I remember sitting in the airport in Sarajevo, which was in bad shape. I mean, the airport was not what you think of as an airport. And I remember watching, before we got on our plane, a plane unloading. And there's like dudes who look like stereotypical, like Arab fighters from a Hollywood movie, like, you know, (laughs) turbans on their heads, blowing robes. And they're getting (laughs) off planes with these guys that look like software salesmen. Wow. Which I can only assume was CIA guys bringing like Mujahideen in to help for the Muslims. So this was 97? This is 97. So it, the war was over, but they were doing something. Um, so and, that was Clinton. Clinton yeah. was, uh, and Wesley Clark and stuff. Isn't that when they were, they were also cutting a lot of like deals. I think there was a scandal coming out of there of like how they messed with the water systems and stuff. like. I think there was a lot of corruption there also. At that well, time, Madeline Albright right. came while I was there visiting <laughs> Croatia while I was there. <laughs> she, she makes and, like blood run cold. <laughs> yeah, the Serbs were all angry about that, and like they, we were given directions that like we were not to leave town while that was going on, and there was high, heightened security and all kinds of stuff like that. In fact, two of my colleagues got fired and sent home because they took. We had a, each one of us got an interpreter and a driver, and your qualification to be a driver was that like you could get gas off the black market and you had a vehicle. Um, and they got their driver to take them on a day trip to Croatia and they didn't come nice. back. And like, we keep showed up for a, like, no one had seen these guys. I'm like, Hey, where are these guys? Oh, I don't know. They, they went to Croatia. I'm like, wait, what do you mean? They went to Croatia. Like my colleagues were like unfazed by this. And we showed up at a mandatory meeting for work and they weren't there. And I made a big stink about it because people were like, Oh, they went to Croatia. We don't know where they are. I'm like, well, wait a minute. They went to Croatia and we don't know where they are. Like, Somebody needs to do something. And what, what happened to them? They got arrested in Croatia. Wow. And um, the State Department had to intervene and get them released. And they ended up getting fired and sent home for that. Croatia's wow. come a long way. Here it's, here it's a hop- happening uh, vacation spot right now. Well, the, the Serbs did not understand at all what had happened to them in the war. Because their view of things like... One of the things I learned when I was over there as an American is how different other cultures view culture and identity and ethnicity and history, right? Because they have this deep ethnic divide and everything for us in the United States is color-coded, right? For them, like for us, if you look at a Croat and you look at a Serb, they're white people, right? Like we don't, and they speak the same language, like we don't get it. But for them, those differences are a huge gulf. And um, I mean, the Serbs people that I met would talk to me about this, that like, you know, for them, World War II was yesterday. And the Serbs were on the side of the Allies, and they were put in camps by the Nazis. 
And the Croats were fascists who were allied with the Axis. Wow. So like the Serbs looked at it and they were like, well, wait a minute. We don't understand why America hates us. Like we were on your side against the Nazis and the Croats were Nazis and you helped them. Well, and they also look at us. Really go on a on a rabbit hole on that whole question. Right. And they look at us and they're like, wait, you hate Muslims, we hate Muslims, we should be on the same side. (laughs) They don't understand that our stuff is all situational, right? Over here we don't like Muslims, over here we do like Muslims. They can't process that. And the town that I was in was actually bombed by the US Air Force with airstrikes. And the, the young lady that I was involved with over there, we sat, I remember sitting in the courtyard of her apartment with her, and she and she was telling me how. She sat in that very spot and watched the planes come over as they were bombing uh, the area. That is terrifying. That was her. That was her adolescence. Yeah, that's that's the U.S. way. So so let's let's just give me the upshot on this. So do you feel like when when I hear like there's a something I read in um like this thousand page history of the U.S. or eight hundred pages like concise history of the U.S. by Paul Johnson and he pointed out that so that's my only source secondary source but that he pointed out that as u.s aid goes up in a country the opinion of the u.s goes down and his kind of um facile naive i don't know uh, explanation for that is that people resent charity and i don't think that's what it is because I always talk to, I have these conversations with Uber drivers or taxi drivers in New York, always, 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 anybody from another country, I'm like, tell me the story. And it seems like when the U.S. does intervene, brings aid in or whatever they're doing, they're really giving money to people who will foster their goals in that country. And the reason that the the amount of, quote, aid is inversely correlated with the opinion of the people in that country is that we're there manipulating it. And so when I see somebody say, okay, we're going to look at these elections, it's hard for me to believe that that's just an altruistic, you know, pursuit of the right outcome. We love democracy kind of thing. So in, in the upshot of what you were doing, like, what would you say the real reason that you guys were there? Colonization. I mean, it was, it's, you know, it's, there's so much, I mean, I only saw like, I was a low level person, so I had only a small glimpse of it, but the level of corruption in that NGO world that is all, by the way, dialed in with the State Department, right? Like the lady who got me the job was the State Department liaison to this massive NGO. That NGO, by the way, is still around. It's called OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which the Serbs called the Organization of All Assholes in Europe. Um, they were deeply resentful of this foreign intervention in their country, and they wanted to be their own country and be left alone. And what we were doing was preventing them from doing that. We were the the that part of of the country, the the Serb half of what is now Bosnia, is the territory that the Serbs took in the war, that Milosevic gave back as part of the peace negotiations. So you had Serbia, which formed its own country with Milosevic in charge. Milosevic ceded this territory to be part of Bosnia. And then Bosnia was a Western-controlled enclave where Western Europe and the United States were attempting to impose their vision of democracy and government and control. And what the Serbs in the RS, which is Republic of Serbsko, wanted was they resented Milosevic for 
basically they, they he sold them out. So they didn't want to be part of Serbia and they didn't want to be part of Bosnia. They wanted to be their own country. And so they resented this. Holy cow. Thing. They resented this whole thing. Right. Because they're, I mean, to their view, and again, I'm not trying to put moral judgments on the war because like, like most wars, there were no good guys and bad guys. Right. And the whole thing was awful. I mean, there right. were atrocities on all sides yeah. and, you know, you know, but the upshot of it was when the war was over, they, from their perspective, they fought and bled and died to gain control of that territory. And it belonged to them. Rightly yeah, the territory wrong. they lived on. Right. I mean, that's what I think. It's that you just, that, that no right can be greater than that you've occupied, especially historically, you yourself have that land. And historically, I mean, that's self-governance. That's why I'm with the Crimeans. Now, what the counterpoint to that would be is, well, what about the people that were forced out in the war? Because there was a... You know, Hopefully they have title to their land. Well, that's an interesting question because what happened there was, and this happened throughout Bosnia, as one group would come in and force out another group, Say you say you lived in the town that I was in, which is a town called Doboy. You own a house there. You've owned the house there for generations. You're a Croat. The Serbs come in and take over, and they push you and your family out, and a Serb family moves into your house. The first thing they do is establish a new municipal government and issue a title to your house, and they stamp it. They love stamps like, over there. As a lawyer, you have to recognize these you know, fundamental legal principles that must Go, I mean, if they had title at all, if they have the concept of being able to own a parcel of land, which not every culture has had always, but if they have the concept, surely it's not as easy as that. Well, that's what they did. And so as part of the peace agreement, the peace agreement invalidated all of those arbitrarily issued titles and restored title to the original title holder. And the idea of my job was that those original title holders would be able to return because one of the documents I could accept there was a, a Yugoslav, one of the things happened is they burned all the public records. Yeah, that's what you would do. Yeah. So um, there, but what we did have was a Yugoslav census from the early 90s, which was what we based all the voter registration. Uh, that's and not good so, enough. <laughs> you know, you know, people could it's good enough out. for voting, but it's not good enough to say, has the title, did you legitimately sell your property? Like people, anybody who sold their property between 90 and 97 would deny selling the property if there right. were no... So, it was, so the whole thing was a mess and it That's was terrible. based on a, a fallacy to start with. But the other part of it that they didn't anticipate was that a lot of those people who were forced out were forced out in the midst of horrific violence where their entire families were murdered. And they didn't want to go back. Right. So they had, they had, they had vastly overestimated. That's one of the reasons that I had nothing to do. Because they had wow. vastly overestimated the desire that people had to go back to where they were. Wow. What most people were doing is, you know what? The world has shifted under my feet. The war happened. I'm going to make a new life where I am. Well, where were they? Most of them, well, like the Croats who had left were probably on the Bosniak side of the line, the, the feder what they called the Federation. Oh, but it wasn't like they were all in Paris and they were just like, oh, some of them yeah, had maybe. Left. Like some of them had left. Some of them had left and moved into Western Europe. Yeah, because if you allow the refugees to come into the Western countries... They're not going to want to leave, especially if you like I, I read this thing about Denmark, like they have they have multi-generational welfare recipient immigrants that right. they are just they the people who were born as children of welfare and never, never even had to learn the language. 
because they, so that's right. the thing about economic. We were talking about economic right. participation earlier. If you have to participate economically, it helps with immigrants to integrate because they have to learn the language. They have to learn the style. They have to, you know, dress appropriately, hygiene, stuff like that has to fit with going to a workplace. But well, the, you're not going to get the refugees didn't come back for that yeah. reason. Um, and so there was very little desire from refugees to come back, but even within the country, people that were displaced internally within the country generally didn't come back. And the people that we saw trying to come back and register to vote was also manipulation. We would get these busloads of people who were Muslims primarily coming from the Federation side where these busloads of people would show up at the voter registration center to register to vote. What we discovered is they were being paid by political parties to come there and register to vote to try to, you know, they're trying to manipulate these rules we're operating under that are designed to push for resettlement to put their people who are going to vote their way registering in this. Well, of course, that's the problem with what you said about them not having, you know, why would you assert that this is where you're going to live? I mean, that's going to be, they're really prone to propaganda. And I think they do that here. Like, why are there, whereas there a huge community of Somalians in Minneapolis, like that's not organic. And the NGOs are the ones who facilitate that. And I think they literally go get people. And I think uh, Sweden has a big like Somalian population. Again, not organic. So, I mean, one of the things that made me realize is that the idea that you are going to restore a place to the way that it was prior to a devastating war, is just, it's a ludicrous idea. I mean, it's a fantasy. Well, they knew that. I mean, the people who put you there knew that it, they were there to shape the future. Right. That's why I said it was colonization, because right. you know the, the luster they put on it for the public is that we are going to restore people's property rights and we're going to help people go home. But those people don't go home. That doesn't happen. What it's really about is we're building a new society in the way that we want it. And that right. project, by the way, that I worked on is still ongoing to this day. All those NGOs are still there. <laughs> oh There's a massive amount of money from Europe and the United States that's been invested over there. And by the way, all of it, you know, you're a libertarian, so I'll speak your language for a minute. All of it was happening through the force of state power and the state threat of violence. There were international troops patrolling the town I was in every day, and there was a separate U.S. military base. And I don't know if these rules have changed, but at that time, the U.S. would not put any troops in the U.N. bases because we had a rule, this is what some of the soldiers told me, is that the United States had a rule that U.S. troops could never be commanded by a foreign officer. So like there was a local UN base where you had like troops from Finland and Sweden and Denmark all being working together, you know, commanded by each other's officers. And then there was a separate U.S. military base. Now, my view of that was that's because the U.S. was doing their own thing. And, you know, we're, we're not interested. And in the other guys were probably a cover so they could say we're an international thing that we're doing this stuff. So. All right. So I'm going to say that my original question of like, are you really monitoring the vote is like much worse than I thought and that you were literally there to shape a whole new world. But um, OK, so now we have the inside scoop on on the international thing. But you also, I think, have the inside scoop on the public defender thing. I hope you have enjoyed part one of my chat with Anthony Raimondo. Part two really blew my mind as Anthony recounts his experiences knee deep with criminals, cops and unions and even some raw truth about his fight against disbarment. You can hear part two commercial free up next on Deep Dives with Monica Perez.